This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news. We begin with breaking news, of course. This is an ABC News special report. And we have a decision just breaking from the Supreme Court. On the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, we're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just rejected a challenge. Good to the morning. Court. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. Hello and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, October 3rd, 2022, and we're back with our fourth episode of our new season of Polylog, How the Media Covers the United States Supreme Court. That's right, and today we are going to be talking about the nomination process, the process of nominating and eventually appointing someone to the Supreme Court. And we're going to get to the confirmation process. But right now for today's episode, we're talking about the initial appointment process, which is the president choosing somebody. Yeah, the nomination. So we're going to take a really deep dive into how the press covers these important moments. Which, as a reminder, is also one of the few instances where the Supreme Court gets a flood of attention to begin with. Exactly right. If you remember that Pew study that we talked about a few episodes ago that noted it was really, you know, the nomination process was really one of the main ways people learn about the court itself. And we just had a nomination this year. That's right. So it it means if we want to kind of take a sneak peek or try to understand how the American public knows and understands our current Supreme Court justices, it's so important that we examine how they were introduced to those people to begin with. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, Brendan, you were going to talk to us a little bit about those introductions. How good are they? Well, I've got a lot to say on that. I don't think I can say, well, I guess I can say blanket wise. (laughs) Of course you're going to say. Are you kidding me? I was not impressed (laughs) with a number of these pieces, but I think there's a lot... um, A lot to talk about here, so let's get started. So as we dive into the introduction of a new potential justice, right, a nominee of the president, I thought it would be important to look at the key stories in major publications during that nomination process. And specifically, because obviously you could look at a million articles over the course of months, but I wanted to look at What are the articles and the pieces that were published on the day the nomination took place? These key moments that actually put the nomination on the front page or at the front of the news broadcast. So not the minute there was a vacancy, the minute they were nominated. That's exactly right. Because the minute there was a vacancy, it was often about, well, in this instance, it was about Briar retiring, right? When there's a vacancy that opens, it's often about the justice who has died or is chosen to retire. And that justice becomes the, becomes the focus. Here is our first chance to be introduced to the nominee. And so I looked at the top story 
in the New York Times, which is a front page story, the top story in the Washington Post, the top story in the Associated Press, which gets pushed to hundreds and hundreds of newspapers around the country. I looked at the top story in and on NPR. I looked at the top story on World News Tonight. I looked at the top story on NBC Nightly News. And I looked at the top story that was written in online publications. And those top online publications are CNN.com, believe it or not, and FoxNews.com. And I also looked at the top story in SCOTUS blog, because that's a major publication covering the Supreme Court. So nine or 10 different articles there that I dove into deeply, and that forms the basis of this discussion. And these organizations weren't chosen just willy-nilly. I really looked at the ones that had the greatest circulation. Brendan had a very thorough process that he discussed extensively in choosing these articles. No worries, everyone. (laughs) Okay, so now that we've established the universe that we're going to be talking about, here's some of the things that stood out. First of all, the story of a nomination is often told through the eyes of the president. After all, a nomination is thought to be one of the most important decisions of a presidency. The problem with this is that the president is not the person who's going to be on the Supreme Court. So hopefully we learn a little bit about the person who's going to be on the Supreme Court as well. But there are lots of examples. Practically all of these articles begin with the headline, Biden nominates Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. And I should say I'm talking about this nomination this year of Katanji Brown Jackson. And again, it's understandable that Biden is the subject of these articles because he's the person we know. He's the person who's doing something. He is doing the nomination. And there was a nomination ceremony that took place February 25th for Katanji Brown Jackson. You know, uh, four weeks ago when uh, a member of the court, friend of mine, we used to work together in the Senate, Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement. I said then, choosing someone to serve on the United States Supreme Court is one of the most serious constitutional responsibility a president has, and I mean it. I promised the process would be rigorous, that I would select a nominee worthy of Justice Breyer's legacy of excellence and decency. So it's not just the headline, but often the first few paragraphs, if not the entire article, seems to be written about Biden. Biden did this. Biden did that. Biden said this. Biden said that. Biden chose Jackson because of this. Biden, 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 Biden. It all seems to be, in a lot of these articles, about Biden. And that's one way to write it, right? But one of the things that surprised me about this was that, unbelievably, even as an article written from the president's perspective, it's astounding how few of these news pieces actually mention Biden's actual experience with nominations and nominees in the past. This is not someone like Trump, who had no experience with the nomination process before being president. Joe Biden was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That means he ran the committee that was in charge of confirming judges. He was the chairman of this committee for eight years, and he was the ranking member of that committee 
That means the highest ranking Democrat for six years before that. In total, Joe Biden spent 14 years as the highest ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, during which time the committee reviewed nine nominations to positions on the Supreme Court. A motion to report Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court to the floor with a negative recommendation. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Kennedy? Aye. Mr. Byrd? Aye. Mr. Metzenbach? Aye. Mr. DeCostini? Aye. Mr. Leahy? Aye. Mr. Hepburn? Aye. Mr. Simon? Aye. Mr. Thurman? No. Mr. Hatch? No. Mr. Simpson? No. Mr. Grassley? No. Mr. Spector? Aye. Mr. Humphrey? No. Mr. Biden? Aye. The nomination of Robert Bork is reported to the floor of the United States Senate with a negative recommendation of nine to five. This is someone, Joe Biden, who is deeply knowledgeable about the Supreme Court, deeply knowledgeable about the Supreme Court nomination process. In fact, it might be said that no president in modern history has had as much experience with the Supreme Court nomination process. And yet, the New York Times, which headlines its story from Biden's perspective, leads its story with its first four paragraphs about Joe Biden, the New York Times doesn't even mention that Joe Biden served on the Judiciary Committee. In fact, nowhere in the 1,800 words of the New York Times front page story about Joe Biden's nomination does it mention the word committee at all, not once. This also doesn't appear once in the extremely long CNN article or in the Washington Post article. It's unbelievable. These articles, again, take Joe Biden as the subject, but never mention that he has any experience with nominees well, of the Supreme like Court. like they just don't acknowledge history. Right! <laughs> In general. Now, I do want to say that the AP article is one of the few that mentions this. But I was just blown away by that. Because I expected going into this that these articles would be Katanji Brown Jackson, like, forward. Like, she would be the, the main story because she's the new person. And then when it was Joe Biden, I thought oh, well, that's kind of odd, but surely they're going to mention probably the most relevant thing about Joe Biden in this nomination, which is his past experience. But no, a lot of them don't do that either. The other thing that stood out to me was that the biography and the qualifications of this nominee come surprisingly late in the story of a nomination. The narrow and short-term politics of the nomination process rides very high in these stories. So what do I mean by the biography comes very late? Well, let's take that New York Times article, for example. The immediate background of Katanji Brown-Jackson, like her name and who she is, shows up in a quick paragraph, paragraph number four. But before we get to the information on her opinions and her experience, we have to hack through paragraphs about the political process, about the Democratic and Republican response to the nomination, and about how Joe Biden came to choose Ketanji Brown-Jackson. In fact, information about Ketanji Brown-Jackson's experience and her opinions shows up at paragraph 25 of 33 total paragraphs in this 1,800-word piece. So practically at the end. Yes, practically at the end. 
And one of those things that rides high in these stories that I mentioned earlier are the Democratic and Republican responses to these nominations and all the politics of these nominations, right? It's told through that lens. And yet you would expect the politics to be covered more extensively or more fully, or at least just better, I guess we can say, than it actually is. So the discussion of the nomination process rarely talks about the possibility of a nominee being defeated. It rarely mentions how frequently that happens or why it happens. In fact, many of the articles, including those by the Washington Post and the New York Times, don't even mention that her nomination will first go to the Senate Judiciary Committee. So there's no sense of even how this process works. Just informing people of the process. Right. And in general, it's pretty weird to understand that there's the confirmation hearing and then the whole Senate then votes on it. Like Yeah, that there's two votes. Right, exactly. And so you you know, you might ask yourself like what, what is in these articles, right? What is covering up what are these 1800 words about? Well, most of the I, I guess I should say much of the coverage looks like a recap of the nomination event itself. Like these reporters were sitting there and they're trying to write for somebody who wasn't at that nomination event what it was like. But this can often lead to some laziness on the part of the reporter. I actually got kind of interested in this, and I wanted to know how many news organizations repeated the Biden line that Katanji Brown Jackson's parents were public school teachers. That's something that Joe Biden said during this nomination, during his like speech, his prepared remarks. And it's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus builder, an accomplished... The New York Times wrote that, quote, her parents were public school teachers, end quote. So the New York Times repeated that Biden line. And CNN wrote that, quote, her parents worked in public schools, end quote. And here's ABC's World News Tonight. And today she reflected on how her parents, both former public school teachers, led her to a life of service. I was also blessed. And that's true, but it's not the whole story. And it kind of leaves the wrong impression. NPR's Nina Totenberg sets the story straight. Here's what she said. Yes, she's a D.C. native. Her parents were both teachers here. Early on, the family moved to Florida, where her father went to law school and became the school board's top lawyer, and her mother became a school principal. So they worked in education, (laughs) would be more appropriate to say. Yes, or it might be appropriate to say, while her parents were public school teachers, her dad was a lawyer, and not only a lawyer, the top lawyer for the entire school board. And her mom wasn't just a teacher, she became a school principal, you know, like... Which is not an unheard of route. You're right. You're just like, you're using an easy line to talk about a moment in her parents' career that sounds good. Right. Rather than like an accurate sentence that is reflective of their full career. Biden and the Biden administration are trying to say, she came from humble beginnings. Her parents were simply public school teachers. But it's not humble beginnings when your dad was a lawyer too, was a top lawyer for the school board, and your mom ran a school, right? That's not humble beginnings. That's your parents were professional 
like really high up in the professional class. They were very successful in what they did. And you followed in the footsteps, the legal footsteps of one of your parents. That's not the humble beginning story that the Biden administration is trying to tell. And yet the New York Times swallowed it whole cloth. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know her parents' story. They could have been humble beginnings. and Her parents could have been humble beginnings. Correct. That's what I'm saying. And they worked their way through their career. Again, I think it's like it's being dishonest by not being comprehensive. Right. And the point here is, here's a perfect example of the coverage leaning on the nomination event, copying verbatim what the Biden administration says rather than doing their own footwork and their own reporting to find the full story, right? Part of the root of this is who the news organization decided, what type of reporter they decided should write these stories. So it won't surprise you to learn that it was a White House reporter who wrote the New York Times story. Katie Rogers covers the White House. She was in the room during the nomination process. So it's not surprising that her story... A nomination announcement. So it's not... It'd be quite quite astounding for a reporter to be in the (laughs) nomination strategy (laughs) meetings. But it's not surprising then that the article reads like a recap of that event. A recap of a White House event. It doesn't matter that it's about the Supreme Court. It's just a White House event. Exactly. Written by a White House reporter. The Washington Post article byline included three White House reporters, but importantly, one legal affairs reporter, Anne Marimau. The AP reports three authors included their chief Justice Department reporter. And of course, NPR's Nina Totenberg covers the Supreme Court. For the last 50 years. Yes. So what does this mean in practice? Well, the New York Times report by a White House reporter notes that Jackson would likely be as liberal as Stephen Breyer. But it doesn't say how liberal Breyer was on the court. So we don't really know as readers. While the Associated Press article provides that context, the Associated Press writes, although Breyer's votes tended to put him to the left of center on an increasingly conservative court, he frequently saw the gray in situations that colleagues were more likely to find black or white, end quote. So that is extremely helpful for the reader. Another example of helpful judicial reporting in the AP piece? Well, the AP article notes that Jackson came from the D.C. Circuit Court, and it actually mentions how many other justices on the Supreme Court came from the same place. And that's three other justices, Thomas, Kavanaugh, and John Roberts. Having a reporter who doesn't just cover the White House, but covers legal issues or covers the Supreme Court makes a huge difference. Here's another example of the difference that's made. The Washington Post article, co-written, remember, by a legal affairs reporter, is the only piece of the 10 I looked at from top news outlets that actually interviewed people who worked for Katanji Brown Jackson. Imagine that. Yeah, someone who has working history relationship. Yeah. The Washington Post article provided way more context on her rulings as well, the duration of her various positions, and what role she had on the sentencing commission that she served on. In short, it wasn't just a report on a nomination event, it was a report on the nominee. So this is a lot about what... Which, yeah. before we move on, understanding a nominee is like a bajillion times more interesting on its face than an event. 
Exactly. Like, I don't care about the party. I want to know about the person that it's about. (laughs) Right. And so I get that it's more work and you need like maybe different people that cover different beats or whatever. But like just as a media consumer, that is a more interesting story. One that I will like spend more time on that like will stay with me rather than like who went to whatever announcement. Yeah. For an example of how some of these articles covered the announcement, I'm going to read you a quote from the AP article, which, by the way, I thought did a pretty good job of being putting Jackson forward in the article, but I'm going to kind of call them out here. Here's one of the sentences that they had in their article. Everyone wore masks because of the pandemic. Biden and Jackson removing theirs to speak. He bent to pull out a lectern step for her to stand on as she made her remarks. So she's not as tall as Joe Biden. (laughs) Is that really more important than... Her jurisprudence. (laughs) Exactly. So this is a lot, I'm talking a lot about what these articles are not talking about, right? But what are they talking about? What's the angle here? Well, here's a good sense of it from the opening of World News Tonight. History made. The president nominating Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to become the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Today, before the American people, Judge Jackson saying her faith got her to this moment, that she was supported by loving parents who were public school teachers, who she said were likely watching in Florida today, proud of their daughter saying she's humbled by this extraordinary honor. Judge Jackson is a 51-year-old mother and wife, and her message to her daughters today. Tonight, our senior White House correspondent, Mary Bruce, on this historic choice and what comes next. At the White House today, President Biden standing beside two history-making black women, nominating Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to serve on the nation's highest court. For too long, our government, our courts, haven't looked like America. And I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation with a nominee of extraordinary qualifications. A Harvard Law graduate, Jackson clerked for Justice Stephen Breyer, whose seat she could now fill. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination. Jackson so quite a few articles talked about the historic nature of this nomination, of the representation, and of Joe Biden promising that he would nominate a black woman, the first black woman to the Supreme Court, and then fulfilling that campaign promise. I committed that if I'm elected president, have an opportunity to appoint someone to the courts, will be a, I'll appoint the first black woman to the courts. It's required that they have representation now. It's long overdue. Secondly, if I'm elected president, my, my cabinet, my administration will look like the country. And I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. There are a number of women who are qualified to be president tomorrow. I would pick a woman to be my vice president. Just to be clear, you just committed here tonight that your running mate, if you get the nomination, will be a woman? Yes. Okay, let me... Senator Sanders, will you... And that is a relevant angle to cover. It's an important angle to cover. But that's kind of all you get on it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like you get the headline, but do we learn about the reasons behind that? Like, like why the court has been unrepresentative? Do we learn about the court's past decisions? Do we learn about what that might mean? I, I don't know. It just feels like it's, it just feels like a superficial headline. 
that fills the airtime when we could be learning more about who this person is and how they might serve on the court. And I feel like sometimes those assumptions are rooted in this like expectation that that's all people want to know, but that's like all we're ever given the chance to know. Yeah, one of the one of the things that really stuck out to me too was how badly some of these places covered the fact that she'll be the first public defender on this court. And what really drove me crazy was the New York Times report that described her public defender background as, quote, unusual and f- and framed it sort of as a liability to be explained rather than a positive. And it never talked about how many justices have been public defenders before. Like, she'll be the first, so there have been non-public defense attorneys like Thurgood Marshall. And didn't talk about why this matters. And some of them didn't even explain what a public defender is. <laughs> right. You know, like yeah. for, for readers to even understand what that means or to understand the context of like, yeah, it's very common for prosecutors to become judges, but way less common for public defenders way to become judges. Way less common. And prosecutors are people who try to put people behind bars. Strengthen right? the penal system. <laughs> right. Public defenders try to keep people out of prison and defend their innocence rather than assuming they are guilty. They're he- they come from a very different perspective. Like, why aren't we talking about this issue, right? It is a meaningful issue. And this is a perfect time to talk about it and to mention criminal justice reform because it's relevant to that. It's relevant to how our criminal justice system works. And yet it's the New York Times thinks it's unusual. Well, and there were literally cases that were heard that are questioning the strength of our federal like penal system. It's actually quite relevant, even right now. It's not like that experience is not immediately relevant. Exactly right. Exactly right. I should point out, however, that while the New York Times report said it was unusual to be a public defender, the Washington Post reporters actually talked with a public defender about what it means to have one on the court. So some places did this better than others. But at the very least, it would be helpful if you mention it to explain what it is. So Naomi, we've been kind of discussing things as we went along, but I mean, what kind of, you know, I broke this into kind of like major takeaways from these reports. Is this surprising to you? Is this what you expected to see? Is this, did this align with your expectations and what you found? Well, I think what is frustrating is that by the time someone is nominated, right? So but by the time Katanji Brown-Jackson was nominated, she had been on the shortlist and there had been coverage about her as a prospective judge. So there's a way, it, it's not like news organizations were surprised by her nomination and didn't have the opportunity to get that kind of history of the court about public defenders or to right. get quotes and background information on like what this would mean for you know the supreme court to have this coverage or to talk to experts like you can actually prep a lot of that beforehand in case she was nominated yes right and so 
you can't let them off the hook for not doing for making this a news recap like an event recap rather than like a deeper profile introduction exactly right exactly right there's really no excuse to have not done the legwork on this because you had you had time to do it right the fact that quotes and reactions from Democrats and Republicans on how they feel about the nominee often comes before these articles are even telling us who this person is or how they might be on the court is just mind-numbingly frustrating. It's like these articles are reinforcing our political polarization by assuming that the readers have to have a gut check or a temperature check from their preferred political side before they even learn the basic facts about these nominees. absolutely. And we're going to talk a lot about that, but the fact that it's like so central to the introduction of this person is already so frustrating. Yeah. It's like you're assuming the worst from your readers, that your readers are going to say, oh, no, 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 I don't need to know who they are. Just tell me, does my side support them or not? Right, exactly. That's what I need to know first. And then at the bottom, maybe if I keep reading along, I'll find out, you know, where she came from. Again, which is boring to read, but... (laughs) Well, exactly, because how interesting is it, like, what Lindsey Graham has to say about her? Never. Really? Well, actually... Lindsey Graham was quite interesting when I was reading about Michelle Childs. But in general, I would say never. He is relevant because he was the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. But I don't think what he says has to come before the knowledge of who she is. Right. In terms of the levels of the priority levels, it could be better. Yeah, exactly. All right, Naomi, so let's talk about those personal experiences that shape a judge. Absolutely. So... You know, if you think about it, in every election for local, state, or federal office, we assume we will have the opportunity, we'll have the chance to get to know the candidates' histories, their backgrounds, to better understand them, and feel comfortable about making our voter choices. I love the direction you're taking this. This is something you think you you would get from someone who does not get voted in. So it is fascinating and truly maddening how much... It's assumed that personal experience are excluded or at the very least extremely limited when reviewing potential Supreme Court justices. When in fact, learning about a justice, justice's personal history is extremely illuminating about their values and jurisprudence. Speaking of jurisprudence, people might say, well, judges look and interpret the law. So why does it matter? Why does their personal background matter? I personally think it's asinine (laughs) to think that their jurisprudence is completely isolated from their personal experience. And we'll talk a little bit about it right here. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, you know, we we talk about whether the president is someone you want to sit and have a beer with. Right. God. Yeah. That's remember that. It's like, oh, well, George W. Bush is someone you want to have a beer with, not Al Gore. That's true. I'm pretty sure Al Gore would have like a great bartender who would maybe make me an <laughs> amazing cocktail. But, but, but the, you know, it's the, <laughs> it's the example of how much we go into the personalities yeah. of the, personality, the people who are going to be president. How they connect, what, how they make you feel, all that type of madness. 
But we don't do, we do so little of that for judges. And there's two examples just in this last appointment process that I just wish we had much richer conversations in trying to understand them. Of course, more broadly, I wish we had deeper coverage of potential nominees, but just in thinking about their personal experience, there were two other black women that were high contenders to replace Justice Stephen Breyer. They were ultimately not chosen, of course, because Biden chose Katanji Brown Jackson. But these two other women, so first looking at Michelle Childs, she is a U.S. District Court judge in South Carolina. If you remember House Whip Jim Clyburn kind of saved Biden and was really pushing for Judge Childs. Yeah, saved him during the election. Right, saved him during the primary election. Convinced black people essentially to vote for Biden and believe in him. And when this opening opened up, was really strongly going for Judge Childs and trying to get Biden to nominate her. Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, but interestingly, Senator Lindsey Graham was also really pushing for Judge Childs. Senator from South Carolina. Correct. Now, in some of the very few profile pieces that we found of Judge Childs, most journalists noted that if she were to be nominated and confirmed, she would bring some educational diversity to the court. All the current members of the court graduated from Harvard or Yale Law School, with the exception of Amy Coney Barrett, who graduated from Notre Dame Law School. So really reflective of like this pipeline where all the justices come from, where they get their training, where they get their clerkships. Like it's, you know, there's a real path. And it would be powerful to have someone who is qualified, who has proven that they can be on the court, who's outside of that pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. But we didn't see in the coverage how that educational diversity would benefit the court itself. They would kind of comment like, oh, it'd be interesting that because she's not from Harvard or Yale. And it would kind of end there. Nor was there any analysis on how the court has this supermajority from these two law schools or com- maybe even comparisons to other times of the court where maybe there was educational or just like personal history diversity yeah and how that might have led to different thinking or different collaboration among the judges or just like a different environment on the court itself it's been in existence for a long time we can't make any historical learnings that might be applicable for us to understand the value potential value of educational diversity in the court like really i can think of some examples (laughs) yeah And then the other judge I think that is actually really interesting to talk about is Leandra Kruger. She was another possible appointment. And her coverage I found also really lacking. She is currently on the California State Supreme Court. Extremely talented judge with really impressive working history. She previously worked in the Solicitor General's office in both George W. Bush and Obama's administration. Eventually, she was the acting principal deputy, you know, pretty high up without being solicitor general. Uh, Actually, in a profile piece by Nina Totenberg, she reported that Judge Kruger was asked twice by Attorney General Merrick Garland to be solicitor general, and Judge Kruger uh, declined both times. So all this to say is that this is so interesting. It's been a while since we've had someone with such deep administrative law experience. I mean, essentially, Judge Kagan. And, well, yeah, Stephen Breyer had a lot of experience in that. Right, but someone who's been confirmed right, recently. Right, someone new, yeah. Yeah, 
not that it's not on the court, but someone who's kind of been brought as a potential nominee with that depth. Mm -hmm. And it was also really interesting that she came from a state Supreme Court, especially because it hasn't been since the nomination of Justice David Souter in the early 90s that someone has come onto the court from kind of the state court. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. So how is that experience different from someone coming from the D.C. appeals court, where most of the justices come from? Again, this pipeline. There was not a single piece about any insights, trends, or jurisprudence approaches, maybe that, you know, Justice Souter brought to his Supreme Court service that maybe another state judge would bring. Uh, Judge Souter, I believe, with all my heart, will prove a most worthy member of the court. His tenure as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the state of New Hampshire, as attorney general of that state, uh, and more recently as a federal appeals judge, unquestionably demonstrates his ability, his integrity, and his dedication to public service. And he has a keen appreciation of the problem. Just like, it, it, it's like the curiosity is missing, right? Just zero in-depth coverage about what this could have meant. Yeah, and it's like as we're looking and thinking and talking about the options before Joe Biden, this is meaningful. Absolutely. And I note these two women, not because I think President Biden chose poorly in choosing Katanji Brown Jackson. I have <laughs> I am not president. I don't have a committee to help me choose the Supreme Court uh, next justice. I have very little skills and insight into how they would compare to each other beyond the political supporters' talking points, which is what we normally see in our news coverage. But these are also women who are very likely could be nominated again in our lifetime. Absolutely. They're, like, they're not young, like, <laughs> like in their 30s, they have, like, so much experience, but they have a lot left in their careers. It would be helpful to know and understand them better should that opportunity come up again. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, there's lots of examples of this. You know, famously, Stephen Breyer was considered for the seat that eventually was given to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. And then later, Stephen Breyer got his seat. Exactly. And then I would say on the other side, there are people who reject any analysis or criticism related to personal or, you know, in this case, religious beliefs and values. Most recently, there was political uproar, you know, people clutching their pearls because people were exploring or curious or questioning the Catholic and extremely pro-life values of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, now Justice Amy Coney Barrett, as if it was inappropriate to question the Catholic faith of someone who would end up being the sixth Catholic justice on the court. As if it's inappropriate to assume that someone's jurisprudence could be influenced by their faith. And again, reminder, Justice Alito literally just spoke to a religious groups in Rome this summer flaunting and bragging about the Dobbs decision. Like, these are not things that happen in isolation. We deserve to know who's getting on the court and how their lives, how their training, how their values will be reflected in that lifetime oh, appointment. Absolutely. I mean... Amy Coney Barrett, one of, if not the most significant pieces of writing she ever did before she became a Supreme Court justice, was something she co-wrote in the late 90s, talking about how someone who believes in the Catholic faith, like how they 
would potentially serve as a judge overseeing execution cases. Right. I mean, she wrote that piece about the idea of the Catholic faith. And so therefore you can't even talk about it, even though she talked about it and it was one of her most important things that she wrote in academia. That's craziness. Yeah. I mean, and like, we're not even touching on like personal characteristics and if we want that on the court like i didn't even try to touch the mess that was the kavanaugh confirmation right because that's more personal history that questions whether or not that person deserves to be on the court right point blank based off of their behavior and choices that's a whole other episode that i'm sure i could do five seasons on But what I'm talking about here specifically are personal values and experiences that you bring that will could affect your decision making. And not to say that what Justice Kavanaugh was accused of couldn't, but it's it's a little bit different. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Your training itself. Yes. Yeah. That was more something he did. Right. An action that he was accused of doing. Uh, Yeah. An accusation. Yes. Specifically. Right. So. Which gets me thinking, Brendan, like, when do you think it's worth interrogating personal experience and when is it intrusive or kind of crossing some line? I think these justices are extremely powerful political players in our system. And as such, everything that is public record on these individuals should be fair game. It is in the public record that Amy Coney Barrett is a Catholic. She went to Notre Dame. She signed various, she signed her name to various Catholic causes. Like her background is in the public record. It is extremely important for us to talk about everything we can about these people so that we can understand where they're coming from, who they are, how they reach their decisions, what their values are, and what they, what types of experiences, personal experiences they bring to the court. That's why diversity is so important, not just the idea of having people from a broad swath of the American public or representative of, of races, genders, ages, you know, diversely, but diversity of experience, people who come at the law from different perspectives and understand how America operates in different ways. It reminds me of when you hear about what Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to do when she was an advocate before the court trying to advocate for women's rights and trying to do so in a way that would make this court that at the time was full of men understand what those experiences were like. And she was smart to try to couch her sex discrimination causes by finding men who were somehow discriminated against so that the other men on the court could understand what sex discrimination is like and how unfair it is. Right. I also want to talk a little bit about, as you were talking about diversity of experience, it reminds me of historically how the court used to operate was very different. So the court used to, the judges on the court used to have to, quote unquote, ride circuit. That would mean that they would have to serve as circuit court judges in different circuits, that is different areas of the country as part of the federal judicial system. And therefore, they would need to literally leave Washington, D.C. and 
cast out about the country to all various corners to be in their circuit to hear those cases. And this was true for well over 100 years of the court's history. And during this period, it was common practice for the judges to hail from the regions where their circuit was from. It was assumed that it was very important to select judges from all these different places in the country so that when they were riding circuit in their region, they had experience in that region. They understood that region and its laws and its customs, as you would hope a judge from that area would. That's just a very, that idea of like diversity of just geographic span is something that we rarely have these days as well. There is also a very interesting story from the 1860s when certain politicians who were pushing for the president to nominate a particular Supreme Court candidate, they worked to reshuffle which states were in which circuit in order to improve their preferred candidate's chances of being nominated and appointed. That's so disgusting. Yeah, because back then, a president's appointee had to serve the circuit where the previous justice whose position they were filling were from, right? So it's like it was very important to choose a judge from that area. Yeah, and I think so much of the personal experience it's interesting. Some of it does come once the president nominates, right? I think Harriet Myers under George W. Bush is a good example of that. It is now my duty to select a nominee to fill the seat that will be left vacant by the retirement of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Once again, I considered a wide variety of distinguished Americans from different walks of life. Once again, we consulted with Democrats and Republicans in the United States Senate. We received good advice from more than 80 senators. And once again, one person stood out as exceptionally well-suited to sit on the highest court of our nation. This morning, I'm proud to announce that I'm nominating Harriet Ellen Myers to serve as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. For the past five years, Harriet Myers has served in critical roles in our nation's government. Where she didn't have the richest experience compared to other nominees and she had a deep personal relationship like a long-standing personal relationship with george w bush from his time uh in texas politics and so there was questioning of kind of just kind of bordering on nepotism a little bit there were other reasons why her nomination got sunk particularly the federalist society decided they didn't like her but I feel like too often it starts once the judge is nominated, but we're losing the opportunity when there's kind of that short list and understanding what that short list, what their qualities are, you know, what what's kind of like up for play, essentially, in an opening. Another thing that I think is worth interrogating around personal experience is once someone is nominated, they're required to submit a really extensive application to the Senate Judiciary. And we're going to get into that a little bit once we talk about the confirmation process itself. But that's supposed to be a really like 100 page plus 
application about their speeches about the what they've written you know their jurisprudence so much and it's supposed to take weeks to investigate that and with justice amy coney barrett it was done in like i think it was like less than three weeks right i think it was like two weeks right so there are other things that jeopardize this interrogation this exploration as to into people's lives and kind of what how they would approach this work but we wanted to talk about the most recent nomination because like we said those women are pretty young we're we it's very likely we'll see them up for play with the state or with the supreme court again at some point and so it's just such a missed learning opportunity for this like for everybody it's yeah exactly it's also a missed learning opportunity in the sense of because we're not talking about different justices or or candidates we should say from different areas of the law and experience i mean those are missed opportunities to understand our judicial system as well like the various people who come from different areas of the judicial system and how it might work and how a federal appeals appeals court judge might be different from a federal district court judge like those are very different things and also why the dc appeals court matters so much is because it gets all the stuff from the federal government right so that's why they get a lot you know they they have that experience of reviewing cases that go that come from the federal government so it's just it's just this assumption that like people have to go to law school to like be curious about this stuff drives me crazy yeah speaking of the dc circuit one of the stories that came out of that book the brethren about the court in the 1970s was that when the new chief justice Warren E. Berger was appointed by Nixon, he had also come from the D.C. Circuit. And at one point, the justices were faced with an issue that had been before the state, one of the state Supreme Courts. And Berger's position was that we'll just, we, the Supreme Court, will just reinterpret the Constitution of that state. And the other members of the court were like, under what basis? Like, we can't do that. You know, that Constitution, the state Constitution, is not in violation of the U.S. Constitution. So it's not our place to reinterpret the state Constitution and assume we know that state's Constitution better than the Supreme Court of that state. Berger's fellow justices realized that he had spent all of his time on the D.C. Circuit. Therefore, he had never dealt with state constitutions and other states. And he was perfectly comfortable with saying that he was the last word on everything federal that came before him because everything was federal that came before him. Right. That's such like a twist. (laughs) That's such a turn of like the assumptions now. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I also wanted to point out as we talk about experience and missed opportunities for conversation, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she joined a court that was entirely composed of federal appeals court judges when she joined in 2009 and she was the only justice at that time who had actually presided over a trial you know where there's like a a, like an actual criminal trial instead of like an appeal that was before her and she had joined according to linda greenhouse in her book she had joined a court with more judicial experience than any other justice confirmed to the court in the preceding 70 years. It's crazy. But interestingly, Obama's other appointee, Elena Kagan, had zero 
judicial experience because she had never been a judge, Elena Kagan. Yeah. I mean, she was the... Solicitor General. Solicitor, yeah. <laughs> she had a lot of experience in other ways, but yeah. I just read this, this moment in the Brethren book. I don't remember which justice it was, but this justice was speaking with, I don't know, some coach of some famous baseball team, football team, who knows. And the coach said to the justice, you know, do you miss your time when you were, you know, like a lawyer, an actual lawyer instead of a, a judge? And the Supreme Court justice said, I think, I'm pretty sure this was Justice Powell. The Supreme Court justice said, would you rather be a player on the field or the referee? Very interesting. (laughs) Of course, nowadays, it feels like our justices are players in the field. Very much so. So throughout our conversation, it's been really clear that a lot of our frustration is that the coverage isn't substantive of who these people are or what they might need to do while they're on the court. And really that ends up being because the media focuses on the politics of the nomination. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about this and it just seems that the base knowledge of the American people is the politics. And then the media focuses on the politics and like we never break out of that cycle. You're exactly right. It's, These justices, when you read these articles, it becomes clear that these justices, these nominees are entering a story that is already in 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 the middle of the story. Right. They're entering the political story and it's often covered by political reporters who are talking about how these individuals plug into or are political footballs in this game that is being played, this political game between players on the board that we all know the names of, Biden and McConnell and Lindsey Graham. And like we, we know all these players on the field, and this is just a political football that's being passed around. And so we only see it that way, and we don't talk about how the law, the judiciary, is its own game. It's a totally different game. It certainly plays into politics. It's it's about power, for sure. But it's a different game. And there needs to be an acknowledgement that it's a different game. There's different rules, different assumptions, different players, different history, teams that identify in different ways, all of this. And yet, it seems, it feels like the media as we read it today is not interested in plugging into that game in inviting us in to understand that game instead wants to keep us within the frame of reference that we're always familiar with right whether we're talking about a judge's nomination or about you know migrants at the border or about a freaking hurricane that hits florida it's all about the political game and how it's playing into that. But so many domains exist out there that demand deeper coverage and are actually more interesting when you engage in a deeper way. It's totally more interesting. And I think we need our national media organizations to foster and cultivate writers who kind of explore this. I this is a little off the subject. And I wasn't planning on bringing it up, but it has me thinking of Ed Young, 
mm-hmm. in the Atlantic and how different his COVID coverage was, just like how vastly different it was where, you know, some people were just talking about the numbers and the hospitalization. Some people were talking about the politics, the funding, a lot about the politics. And Ed Young, for the last, you know, two and a half years, just found new angle after new angle to like really portray what this pandemic is like for certain people. And I mean, he's going on a six month sabbatical and he totally deserves it. (laughs) I just saw on Twitter today, but it's that like I never read an article and didn't think about it for a week. And I wish I could say the same for literally any Supreme Court article ever. Exactly right. I mean, the the pandemic is actually a really good example because when the pandemic started, we didn't even know what a pandemic was, right? right? Like everything was new vocabulary. Everything was new for people, except for, you know, the Fauci's of the world and the people who said, oh, well, I told you so, right? But other than those people who had been studying it for a long time, most of us had to learn all sorts of new terms, all sorts of new rules, right? And we kind of learned along with other people, like the idea of wearing masks and... Wearing better masks. <laughs> yes, and air filtration and and surfaces and airborne and, and just all these things. And then we had to learn about vaccines and mRNA vaccines and how they're different from other vaccines, how, va- how the whole vaccine authorization process works and what an emergency use authorization actually is and how you isolate and how you contact trace. These are all concepts that we had to learn to understand this new domain that was just thrust upon the entire world, not to mention case counts and and lockdowns and just so many things, so many concepts we had to learn because it was a new dona- domain and it had to be treated that way. It couldn't just be treated as these Republicans say this and these Democrats say that. It just couldn't. And the Supreme Court is its own domain and we need to cover it that way. We need to cover it that way. And we're going to talk about all the ways it's not being covered that way. I mean, again, I think exploring the introduction of judges is like the first moment, but you'll see the missed opportunity as we have, and you'll see that it's done over and over and over again. So the next missed opportunity of the media covering the state Supreme Court, we just did the nomination process. In next week's episode, we're going to talk about the confirmation process and all things Senate and Supreme Court. So that's it for Polylog. This week and every week, we encourage you to make your dialogue count. You can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Soronaomi underscore. You can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. And you can follow me at Beastidle. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.